42 to Doomsday is taking a look at biographies devoted to those who've worked in front of and behind the camera on Doctor Who. We're really pleased to have Richard Marson with us on this episode to discuss his work on the forthcoming biography from Milk Publishing of Doctor Who's very first producer, Verity Lambert. Richard has worked in TV on shows such as Going Live, Top of the Pops, Record Breakers, Tomorrow's World and Blue Peter. Recently, he had a direct hand in the documentaries Children's TV on Trial, Upstairs, Downstairs Remembered and Tales of Television Centre. Aside from his TV work, Richard wrote for Doctor Who magazine for a number of key years during the 1980s. He has previously written an acclaimed biography of Doctor Who's last classic-era producer, John Nathan Turner. As mentioned before, he has ventured into the deep past to write a biography of Verity Lambert. Richard, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Mark, will we start, we'll start the questions then? We will, but before we start, uh, Richard, a few uh, thank yous from a friends of ours who love our J&T biography. So do we. Oh, brilliant. I'm so pleased to hear it. As you will have probably know, it had a fairly uh, mixed reception at the beginning when it first came out here in the UK, mm. but then happily things settled down and I think people were able to give it a bit more of a kind of, you know, balanced hearing. I think the timing was um, probably not the best, was it really, with the whole Saddle thing blowing well, up at the time? The Jimmy Saddle thing was, was hideous on every level. I mm. mean, for anyone who worked for the BBC for a long period of time, you know, that, that man has done so much damage kind of culturally and to, to generations of people, as well as the obviously more important issue of the damage he did to individuals. But I think obviously the book, was written before Jimmy Savile thing came out and we we were committed to a publication date uh, of March of that year and you know unfortunately sometimes events in the news you know don't always kind of times I mean a lot of people thought it was cynically timed particularly for for, for that reason but mm. they could they couldn't have been more wrong I think the true value of the book will be in in, in years to come and in, in sort of giving a, a, a more clear-eyed perspective of, on, on a particular era of the show's history. I hope so. I mean, the intention, my intention was, obviously I'd had a had, you know, fair amount to do with John back in the day, but I really wanted it to be a grown-up book, a book uh, that explored not just his life and, and what happened to him, but against the context of how the BBC was changing and how television was changing and how, in the end, both he and the show kind of got left out in the cold. Very much, and that's a, uh, a, a nice connection to our first question, I suppose. I mean, after doing the J&T uh, biography, uh, Richard, what was your motivation in writing about uh, Verity Lambert going back to the show's very, very beginning? Well, it was really, if I'm honest, Matt West of Milk nagging me to do it because <laughs> I'd done, you know, it's a huge amount of work, obviously, you know, which I'm certainly not moaning about because it's fascinating and, and incredibly involving. Um, but, you know, to take a, a, a long time and I have to do all this alongside the day job, if you like, because as anyone will tell you, you can't make a, a living out of books unless you're J.K. Rowling. But, <laughs> you know, so so I was very hesitant about taking on something of that scale and I didn't want to take on another biography unless I felt it could be even better if you see what I mean you know you want to set the bar and you sort of think well you need to learn from everything you do and I felt that I had learned certain things from writing uh, John's biography um, and you know I kind of thought well if I'm going to take this on I need to feel that I can truly commit to it but he wanted the book delivered really within a sort of year uh, of starting to write it and uh, I have to tell you that last year was very interesting because I was working seven days a week, um, really, through most of the year. And it, and it was a huge undertaking because Verity's life and career was so rich. So I had no idea, I don't think, to the extent 
to which there was going to be so much to kind of discover. discover. And in terms of discovering and, and, and your research, um, how, I suppose, you, you would have had to rely in part on, on written records of her life? And also, as you, yeah. as you indicated, before you interviewed a lot of people, what in terms of the paperwork to begin with, how numerous uh, is that sort of paperwork with regards to her life and career? Well, I think when you're doing the research for, for a biography, obviously you're looking at every possible available piece of research. I was hugely lucky that the early stages of her BBC, the 10 years or so that she was at the BBC, the BBC Written Archive Centre have a fantastic uh, paper archive, and there was a lot of stuff there. Um, and also there was sporadic, material that she had kept that then had gone to friends after her death because as you know she didn't have children or close family so her friends were her family and the people closest to her ended up cooperating just magnificently really and they gave me so much help and access to you know letters and but she wasn't a she wasn't a hugely introspective or retrospective person verity was someone who lived in the moment and looked ahead so she wasn't one for sentimentally hoarding loads of stuff and she wasn't one for um really there wasn't an enormous she didn't write diaries for instance um and her letters i think were much more kind of business orientated rather than personal although there weren't sort of notes and things so there was a fair amount of paper material tragically her own company which obviously had a lot of stuff most of that was skipped when the company was wound up uh and you know there are gaps elsewhere but but then i always feel the most important thing above and beyond anything you find on paper are the primary sources and as many of those primary sources and people you can interview who genuinely were there and were witnesses and the more of them you can corroborate by getting three or four different views of the same time in that person's life the, the better it is and then there again i was very lucky because you know i think i've interviewed something like 140 people for this so more than john now with the uh... The John Nathan Turner biography, um, one of the things I noted was the wildly divergent opinions or personal opinions about the man himself. You had, <laughs> on the one hand, you had people who loved him, and on the other hand, you had people who came into contact with him who didn't necessarily love him to that extent. <laughs> Did you find the same dichotomy with uh, Verity Lambert, or was there it was a more a greater convergence of opinion about her personal opinion? It was much more consistent. I mean, uh, Verity that was one of the joys really there was a there was a kind of consensus about her that really ran from her childhood all the way through to the very last days of her life i think that her friends were well aware of her failings as she was herself but they were in a very different i mean she she was not an erratic or unpredictable person you kind of knew where you were with her and i think even if you like she had one or two enemies, one particular very close friendship that turned into a bitter, bitter en enmity. Um, but that is not unusual in film and TV. And re really what was surprising was that there were very, very few people who were really anti-Verity. Now, I'll ask a slightly esoteric question. We've been conditioned in part by, you know, reading movies and books to see, you know, the characters' lives as being neatly packaged as a, you know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's a sort of a triumphant <laughs> finish um, but life, yes. people's lives are much more messier than that. Um, yes. Along with your approach to, you know, J&T's bio, what was your, um, how did you go about marshalling all the facts about Lambert's life and making it a sort of a comprehensible narrative? What, I mean, given the number of people you spoke to and the, and the volume of paperwork, how, how easy or hard was that to do? I don't think it's easy at all. I mean, I think obviously you have another issue, which is that your word count 
um, you know, this is a thicker, bigger book than it's 450 odd pages, uh, which equates to about 160, 70,000 words. So it's not by any means a small manuscript. But even so, as you point out, everybody's life has all sorts of peaks and troughs and, and twists and turns. And, you know, you've got to try to keep faith with a chronology, because unless you're trying to be terribly esoteric, to use your word, I think most people want to to plow through somebody's biography in a in a generally chronological sense. But I think that you don't uh, along the way want to lose sight of my my kind of guiding thing is that you have to try to conjure up not just what the person achieved professionally, which in her case was a huge amount. Uh, and it can't just be a shopping list or, or a trawl through IMDb. It has to conjure the essence of her personality and go into what were her emotional kind of challenges, not in a prurient kind of neck curtain twitching way, but so that you get you know, most people what they do for a living especially in the entertainment industry it's hard to divide that and their kind of personal uh, passions uh, completely you know there's a crossover and there certainly was with verity too uh, I'll, I'll preface uh, my I'll... next question mark uh, sorry richard with um a quote uh, a fellow named johnny goodman mentioned in um the article uh, in dwm and verity lambert passed away and he said the following i always felt deep down that that hers was a lonely life but i think that uh, she was sustained by her work um, now, it was well known that uh, Verity Lambert was a pioneering uh, you know, woman in her field and that Newman famously said that she was full of piss and vinegar. Um, <laughs> how, did, how driven was she to succeed in her field? Um, and obviously, is it possible to say if this drive for professional success took a personal toll? I think that from the point where she got her real break, she was incredibly driven. I think up until that point in her early days in television, when she was a secretary and a PA, she wasn't really sure what quite what she was doing. She very, very nearly gave it all up to go into the antiques business, believe it or not. Mm. And obviously, Sidney Newman suddenly gave her this life changing opportunity. Once that happened, I think she was like a heat seeking missile. I think she was a absolutely demon worker. Very bright very go-getting, the kind of person that activity kind of thrives around. And I think that, you know, all of those qualities, as soon as she began to attain success, it became important to her to kind of, I think she was competing with herself as much as with her contemporaries, but she liked to do good work. She liked to be noticed and she liked to, you know, be out there and, and be kind of I mean, her social life was as active and busy as her work life. But I think the point that Johnny Goodman was making, and it's an interesting one because it does tend to be made more by men than by women. And some of her female friends would refute this entirely, uh, that this loneliness, this the price she paid was an emotional price. And I think to some extent that's true of any very successful person because you can't really work at that kind of level. Uh, without sacrificing the time that you might have with family or with partners or whatever. She was married for over a decade and for some of that time very happily married. And the marriage didn't work, but she would have liked it to. I mean, he left her, but they retained contact. And as you will discover in the book, he was there right at the very, very end of her life. And, you know, that's an interesting thing. She inspired great love in other people. And further to that, there's another quote that uh, she was once described as uh, being not only one of Britain's business... Uh, oh, I think I've misquoted that quote. Uh, she was po- <laughs> described as possibly the most powerful member of the nation's entertainment industry. I mean, how accurate a characterization uh, is that based on your research? And 
I suppose, how, how was she regarded in the broader TV and, uh, I suppose, film industry to an extent? She was hugely well regarded, certainly in the television industry. Um, the film uh, side of her career was a bit of a disaster, which no doubt we'll talk about. But in, in television terms over those decades, I mean, she had a peerless reputation and people would follow her uh, all over the place because it was Verity Lambert and they knew what she was about. Um, I think uh, that the what you're saying about... Um, you know, kind of going back to this thing about her personal professional life. Uh, I think people knew that if she if you were the writer working for her or the director working for her, she demanded the very highest standards from you. But she also fought your corner and didn't seek to steal the limelight from you, which many other producers do. So I think those things marked her out. I think she was so dedicated to making programs that this prevented her really from going into the kind of management side of things and that's where a lot of the power is so I think she sort of could have become if you like controller of BBC One or managing director of one of the other channels and and no doubt those things might were, were mooted at various points but I just don't think that was her I think she knew that where she was happiest was making stuff. Given your experience in the television television industry in the UK Richard did you find that you met similar people to her, people with similar drive and, and, and vision? There are a few, but I think the tragedy is that there aren't a huge number. And I think that the way that the industry has gone uh, mitigates against those kind of characters because, you know, Verity was was somebody who I don't know how family orientated your podcast is or whether I'm allowed to swear, but, you it. know, she had absolutely, you don't, don't like it my way, well, fuck you. In the nicest possible way she was not scared of anybody and she was quite happy to go into a meeting with the great and the good or talk to her leading lady or leading man and tell them absolutely bluntly uh, what she thought that is and that's an era that's gone people are too scared to do that you know committee rules people are very very cautious and you know she existed in an era where people trusted those kind of program makers based wisely on their track record and could say to her here's a multi-million pound budget uh, give me 80 hours a year of drama make sure there's a good mix and know that she would deliver that would never happen now so she was a product of her time and there were other people like her in terms of the drive and the achievement but you know they are they were few and far between in those days and like if you like the golden years of television nowadays they are i i think not in plain sight at all verity moved from uh, granada television to bbc and london weekend and, and abc i have to interrupt you. i'm sorry granada, she she started at granada and was sacked oh okay uh, not very good at her job then she went to a now defunct itv company called abc and that's where she met newman and and all of that started okay shut uh, now so that's all right. <laughs> did did she prefer working for the BBC or independent television, do you know? I think that at the time she worked at the BBC, she didn't know any different, really. That was her first producing role. And at the end of that decade, in 1970, as you will discover in the book, she had a terrible shock because the BBC basically gave her the boot and she wouldn't have left otherwise. And so she she was terrified. She had a sort of mini breakdown at that point. But she picked herself up and very quickly came back fighting, as was typical of her. And once she was free from the BBC and started to work as a freelancer, I think she never looked back. I think she realised that there was much, much more, uh, there were more advantages to be had 
in having the hired gun approach and being able to go where she felt like going for you know maybe two years maybe three four years but never really until she formed her own company being kind of committed long term so Mm. she had the flexibility and the choices um, now, Doctor Who is only part of her resume. I mean, she was either involved uh, in on a hands-on or at a high level with shows like Minder or Jonathan Creek or Widows or GBH. Is it yes. possible to draw a line between these very different programs in terms of her approach to telling, you know, television stories? Or was she just simply interested in the next very good idea? Yeah, I think that's it, really. I mean, I think that is the line that that connects them all up. The family tree of Verity's programs is that she was someone who had a curiously brilliant knack of recognising something that was a quality production or proposition, but also something that would put bums on seats and that people would watch. So she wasn't particularly interested in in doing the kind of stuff that five people would review and talk about in the in the grown-up newspapers and then no one else would see she wanted her stuff to be commercial but she also wanted it to be extremely good and i think that was the defi- that was the kind of common ground whether it was minder or edward and mrs simpson whether it was doctor who at the very beginning um you know all of the shows have that sort of in common and she didn't care for failing hugely although she did say of El Dorado that if you were going to have a failure you might as well have a really epic one (laughs) how did she cope with the failures in the career do you know was it a case of learning and then just moving on or yes I mean I think she was going back to my point I think I made earlier that she wasn't someone who looked backwards I think that she fought as hard as she could as long as she could but when somebody said to her, that's it, you, the show is not going to continue, then I think she just thought, OK, I have to go on to the next thing now and let it go. Now, um, I suppose we're skipping a little bit ahead slightly, but she, um, just moving on from TV, she, she did move into the film industry uh, later in she her did. career, which she herself uh, described as a terribly tough and not very happy experience. Can you give us a bit of a background on her decision to move into film and and, and how did it all go? Well, I think you have to remember that, you know, most people in television, particularly then, films were like the kind of uh, mirage, you know, they were the, the wonderful next step. Many people were lured from television into film. Most of them got their fingers badly burnt and let, limped back to television again pretty pronto. Um, not many directors, say, made the leap permanently. But Verity was at a stage where she, you know, was probably at the peak of her success when that job offer came along. In fact, it was a poison chalice, as we all know now. But mm. hindsight's a wonderful thing. It looked like an opportunity for her to kind of take over the the ailing fortunes of a leading British film company and make six or so films a year of her choosing. But she never really had the freedom of choice she had in television. She wasn't really allowed to trust her instincts, which meant that she was trying to do that awful thing of second-guessing what films might be commercial. She was on a hiding to nothing. And people have said, oh, why did she stick with it? Why didn't she just say, screw you, which would have been her normal approach? And as I think David Putnam said to me, you have to remember that she was probably being paid something like three times her already considerable salary in TV terms. And she probably had other perks as well. So it was in her interest to hold on for as long as possible and also she again she hated to fail she would have 
really tried as for as long and as hard as she could and then i think what happened was that canon uh you know an american company came in and took over and basically everyone was out and that was the end of it but even in her exit she managed to negotiate a deal to get kind of money to develop her own projects which is how she got her famous aussie movie evil angels as it was known out of there uh, cry in the dark over here and you know that wouldn't have happened really without her tenacity i forgot about that film actually well don't do that no no <laughs> it was meryl streep was in it wasn't she meryl streep sam neil and every australian screen award going i think it won now just picking up on your point about her hating to fail uh, richard just going yeah. back to the very beginning of her career, um, I think that her her not knowing, I suppose, or what she wanted to do or, or a lack of where she wanted to be. I mean, she, she worked at Granada for a number of months in the typing pool or something like that. Uh, and then she get, was given the sack and then she sort of came back and all that sort of thing. I mean, did she, in, in her early life, I mean, there was certain disappointments with regards to her education and did she not know where she wanted to be in terms of her you know, professional life at an early age? No, I mean, again, you have to remember that um, for women in that era, the era that she was growing up, it wasn't expected that, you know, nice middle-class Jewish girls from North London would have a career. You know, they might do a little bit of secretarial work, but really the intention was that they were going to find a nice Jewish husband. And that indeed is nearly what happened. I mean, Verity was engaged more than once to nice Jewish doctors and so on. Um, but really, you know, she was never going to be able to cope with that. And But as a young person who very much adored her father, she had to go through a process before she could kind of break free. And that's why I think for a long time she didn't really know what she wanted to do. Um, also, her education was was only deficient in the sense that you know it wasn't thought hugely necessary for girls then to go to university and things in fact her father would have liked her to have done that but she flumped really at school she went to a very posh girls boarding school and she felt like an outsider didn't really apply herself hugely and so it wouldn't have been possible for her to have gone to university so you know really her her early years were not illustrious in that sense but but in a way that's not surprising given the times. And perhaps those failures may have given her the drive to succeed professionally, or is that a, a psychological step too far? No, I don't think so. I think I think there's absolute common sense in that. I mean, I think she um, did feel a huge chip on her shoulder that she didn't have a university education. In fact, it was the one big lie of her life that she used to tell people she'd been to the Sorbonne, um, whereas in fact she had lodged in that area of Paris and had a little sort of night classes and things she didn't actually go to the University of Paris at all but she allowed it to be known I think partly because many of her contemporaries were the brightest sparks from Oxford and Cambridge and so on and she did feel uh, you know vulnerable at times and uh, you know all of that is discussed in the book and it's an interesting thing because you know I think again she didn't like to ever feel on the back foot and, and that was her kind of Achilles heel. And years later, when she was offered an honorary degree at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, I think that really did help her feel like she'd arrived. You know, and that was much, much later in her life. Were there any aspects of her life that you were keen to discover? Uh, and, and did you find out anything about her that you didn't know previously? Well, yeah, obviously I found mm. out loads of stuff I didn't, because I didn't know a huge amount. I mean, I, I knew a lot about her programmes, I suppose, because like mm. anyone, you know, I'd, I'd watched a lot of them. I, I went into it with an absolutely open mind and open heart about what I'd find. And I have to say, it was it was really moving at places. I mean, I, I, got, I felt very kind of like 
I would have loved to have known her. I'd have loved to have worked for her or with her. Um, I think she would have been a fantastic person to party with. You know, really good fun. And actually, John would have been a fantastic. I mean, I know he would have been a fan, but less of a good person to work with, perhaps. Mm. Um, whereas I think I think, you know, I, I grew to really admire her and like her. And I liked the fact that despite her various, you know, flaws and, and you know, complications, if you like, she was never somebody who dissembled. She wasn't a hypocrite. She she knew who she was. And that's a very attractive quality. And it's interesting. You're going to like this, I think. She always regarded herself as an honorary Australian. And one of the reasons she was very drawn to Australians, and I had an Australian PA for two and a half years and kind of know exactly what she means, is something about a kind of directness, a lack of snobbery, uh, uh, willing to accept people on their own terms if they're, if they're willing to kind of participate and do the work and, and just be one of the team, if you like. And I think that there's a great photo in the book of her um, slightly making fun of herself as the honorary Aussie with a, uh, having a tinny on the beach. With <laughs> a, and, and, and I think, you know, that was, and she spent many months out there and, and there on her office, she had a frame certificate where they'd, you know, faked up an Australian citizenship for her and stuff like that. So yeah, I found out a lot about her, but it was, it was a wonderfully positive experience and there wasn't the same degree of real tragedy that there was with John. Mm. Um, although the, end of her life is is very moving because i suppose any, the end of anybody's life especially someone who's made a real impact and 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 is truly loved by a lot of people i mean that's always going to be moving at that stage i, I have this awful habit sometimes when I, I read biographies of of flipping to the end and sort of dwelling <laughs> on uh, the circumstances of a person's death which i suppose says a lot about me and it's perfectly I, normal <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, and I, I, all the people I've spoken with with regards to the JNT biography have themselves, and uh, you know, hard-bitten friends, have uh, confessed to being very deeply moved by the circumstances and, and how you wrote it and depicted it uh, of JNT's death. Just in terms of the actual writing, I mean, when you have a, uh, an individual like that who, say JNT, who's in, in some ways deeply flawed... Uh, yeah. How do you how do you bring that to the page that you know that even though they're deeply flawed they are a human they're a human being they're a fellow human being how did how did you find writing I suppose that last bit of of, of JNT's life and indeed of Verity's well I I have to say I found it very moving myself I mean with John I remember re reading reading back to myself the first draft and I was like in floods of tears um, and I I feel that you you have to have some ability to empathize with the person you're writing about you've got to fight their corner you've sort of if you like you're their sort of judge jury prosecution defense all wrapped into one so you've got to not be blind to their faults and you've got to explore them because they're often the things that make them interesting and they're often the things that are the motive for them doing what they do you know, you cannot divorce people's motivations and behaviours and actions sometimes from their successes and achievements as well as their failures and failures. And I think that was true of both, you know, these these very interesting people. Um, and the end of somebody's life, you know, is a distillation of how did they get to that point? What impact did they have on the lives of the people closest to them and even the people who didn't like them? And that you know that refining that seeing that through to a kind of six thousand piece 
of writing is can be really intense. I don't want to sound too kind of pretentious about it, but I think if you're not emotionally connected to the person whose story you're writing, then, you know, it doesn't really work. I love biographies and I think, you know, the ones that I would aspire to write, you know, Claire Tomlin's biography of Dickens, I should be so lucky, but they do give you, they, they slightly give you the idea that the person's alive again, you know, so when you get to the point where they die, you kind of you're you're slightly shocked that you realize oh they did die and that's the end of it and you can't get them back again except in this way through reminiscence we might as well since we're a doctor who podcast we'll we'll talk a little bit about her doctor who career (laughs) just to move away from sad stuff so sydney newman uh basically headhunts her for a position uh a producer's you know position at the bbc she's she's a female she's i suppose jewish uh, in establishment Britain, and she's very young. So I just interrupt you there. I mean, bear in mind that being Jewish in the entertainment industry wasn't a particularly. There were a lot of kind of ah. Sydney Newman himself was Jewish, right. and um, you know there were a lot of Jewish kind of people. Lou Grade. I mean, there were loads of kind of significant Jewish players. Thanks for clarifying that. Well, tell us. I mean, she, she was headhunted. How did she slot in? How did she approach the work to this show that had been begun by uh, hands before her? I think the great thing about Verity was that uh, she said herself that she would have taken a job producing the weather. You know, I mean, I don't think she had any interest in Doctor Who per se, except that it was the first thing she was going to get the chance to produce. But she wasn't cynical. And I think she thought, OK, I've been given this job of a children's program. I'm going to do the very best I can with it, you know, probably largely for personal reasons at that stage. But she wasn't a psychopath. You know, she did quickly connect with people. So like that little core cast, I mean, she chose Bill Hartnell. She chose William Russell. She chose uh, her mate, uh, Jacqueline Hill. I mean, you know, so she they were her first choices, if you like. And I think it became a kind of little tight team, all fighting against the disinterest and, you know, p- political behavior of the BBC you know which has always been a very very kind of intensely frustrating place for people who don't get it so she learned the hard way that you know what somebody said wasn't necessarily what they meant and that you know she was producing this supposedly futuristic serial with the worst possible facilities the BBC could dredge up Hmm. and a terrible budget and a a a lack of commitment to its long-term future and she had the energy and the drive and the to carry on fighting and she also was able to keep Sidney Newman at bay Newman was brilliant in in getting things started and acting as a catalyst but when it came to the detail I mean I think sometimes he hated the music he hated and she just said no tough you're wrong we're going to keep it she had the guts to fight him about the Daleks you know she really earned her spurs doing Doctor Who. And I think a lot of that, she very wisely said years later, was because she didn't know any different. So her ignorance protected her. She was able to just carry on fighting for what she felt instinctively was right because she hadn't at that point had any opportunity to sort of explore other ways of doing things do you see what i mean exactly Mm. i suppose a lot of our uh, perceptions of the relationship between her and the cast are sort of colored by mark gaddis as an adventure in space and time um how accurate would you say that depiction is and what was her relationship like say with hartnell and and the other you know the key cast members at that time 
Well, I mean, I asked all those people who were around, who were still alive, to ask what they thought of that film. And most of them were fairly critical of the portrayal of Verity. But, you know, you have to acknowledge that Mark's film was a wonderful fairy tale. Mm. And really, it really the, the focus was Billy Hartnell rather than Verity. Verity was a sort of supporting character. But I think he did a huge amount of research. And so I think it was true in the essence of as far as it went. You know, it wasn't trying to tell the story really of all the kind of backstage dramas of getting the thing made. I mean, it alluded to them and there were moments, but obviously he had to kind of morph several characters into one. You know, Mervyn Pinfield was representing three or four people, for mm. instance. Mm. And Verity was probably... I mean, I say probably, I'm hedging my bets, was certainly too saccharine and sweet. You know, you didn't see too much evidence of piss and vinegar, I don't think, in that portrayal. Um, and she was sort of very feminine and girly, which I think Verity was sort of tougher and more chain smokery and sweary. And, you know, she was kind of, you know, very much a sort of hold her own in the bar type. Um, she wasn't demure. But I think that what he did get right was that there was huge trust between Bill Hartnell and, I mean, for actors, it's incredibly intoxicating to have a beautiful young producer choose you at a point when your career probably isn't doing so great and say, here, come and be the star in this. And I think that, that you know, that would have been a fantastic foundation for a relationship between them, a professional relationship between them. And she trusted him to deliver what she wanted, and he did. You know, what the, you know there are people who didn't agree with the casting and the rest of it, but... You know, you just you, you can't argue with the success that they jointly made of it. I think it was very reassuring for her to have a mate there in the form of Jackie Hill. And I think she knew precisely what she was doing when she got uh, William Russell, Russell Enoch, uh, as the sort of square jawed hero type, but also a good actor. Um, and I, th I think that her casting choices were a large part of the reason why the thing worked when verity left the program did she keep an eye on it uh, over the years yes what? not yeah. in any kind of um she wasn't sending memos through saying what the hell are you doing yeah. but she she i think she was always interested in it and um and rather sweetly and i think this was to do with her upbringing she always had the manners to re reply to people or respond if you invited her to a doctor who convention or you just asked wrote to her asking for her autograph or what did she think of the latest doctor you'd get a reply and she did go to Doctor Who conventions and do Doctor Who events and obviously in in her later years she did DVD commentaries and documentaries and all you know she was absolutely open to celebrating this uh, very important program in her career she wasn't someone who yearned to go back to the past as I've said before you know she was more bothered about what she was doing at the time but she was canny enough to know that Doctor Who gave her street cred Doctor Who gave her a cachet and there were children who'd grown up with Doctor Who who of course in the later part of her career she was employing or working with or who were her adult audience and you know those things are very handy in, in, in the entertainment industry so she always knew what Doctor Who meant to her and what it did for her and she was loyal to it and bothered about it so she didn't like when she didn't like things she didn't hold back so she could not bear 
the casting of John Pertwee and the whole unit set up. As she famously said, you know, there was an episode in which he phoned the prime minister up. And she said, in my day, you know, if Bill Hartnell had done that, he'd have told the prime minister to fuck off. <laughs> so so you know, that, was, that, that was verity. And she didn't, and she pr- profoundly disapproved of how it went under John in the 80s. She couldn't bear what she regarded as the camp send up. She thought that Doctor Who needed to be taken seriously by the people who made it and by the people who acted in it. She felt that it, that was the only hope of the programme ever succeeding, that it needed to be believed in. And I think that she absolutely approved of the revival. Um, she adored David Tennant. She adored Billy Piper. She thought they were magnificent pieces of casting. She wasn't so sure about Chris Eccleston, I don't think. But, but you know, she knew that Chris was a uh, very weighty casting, clever casting for the comeback. But it was when Tennant arrived, which was really very shortly before she died. But she certainly thought that was, you know, genius star quality casting. Did Verity attempt to get the rights to Doctor Who in the early 90s when the show was cancelled? Yes, um, that's that's in the book. It wasn't quite so formal as that. She had a very good relationship with a lot of the people, you know, running the different TV companies, among them Jonathan Powell, who is not, as you know, a friend to Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, and when Doctor Who was coming to the end of its life as an in-house production and they were touting the rather half-hearted idea that they might farm it out to an independent partly because at that era they were desperately looking for things they could farm out to independents to tick their quota for the government. Um, And Doctor Who was one of the things they thought about and various people pitched. And Verity did get her company to start doing a certain amount of work. And and she had in mind casting the comedian uh, Peter Cook as the Doctor. But I think, and, you know, one of her team I talked to, and they talk about this in the book, I don't think that she was in the end very convinced by the idea because i suspect and this is my supposition i think she realized that it was a bit by that point it was a bit of a poison chalice and had she taken it on and it hadn't succeeded she would have sort of buggered up all that wonderful legacy that she'd taken away with her with doctor who she would have spoilt it for herself Mm. and actually she didn't need to at that point she had loads of other things going on so why give herself the headache and potential heartache of returning to a program and not succeeding so i think she kind of backed off actually and in fact jonathan powell said to me even had she come up with a brilliant pitch for it the bbc weren't really interested in reviving it so they wouldn't have gone for it she always came across as somebody who was always forward-looking and not didn't want to look back absolutely I mean, she was extraordinary. She was, you know, that terrible cliche of modern journalism, a force of nature. You know, she uh, she was very impatient and had a quick temper and her shouting fits and ability to stamp her feet, literally, and her eyes to fill with tears, not of sadness, but of sheer rage and frustration and her use of every swear word in the book. I mean, I think she sounds amazing. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to have spent time, you know, she loved to drink, um, as they all did in that era. Um, but she wasn't an alcoholic like John. And she, because uh, she liked to eat as well. She was a very, very good cook and adored good food and adored dinner parties and being social. So it's an interesting thing when people talk about the loneliness. I mean, there's inevitably people who live on their own and don't have children. Yet you can form an argument to say that there were lonely moments in her life. But I get the impression that she was at peace with herself and i think she realized yes she could have had 
some things but i think she also was realistic enough to know that you can't have everything and she did have a pretty bloody wonderful life really we looked at the, a personal legacy there i suppose in terms of her popular legacy uh, in te- in television it's it's doctor who I, I suppose for doctor who fans it largely is well, uh, certainly yeah having written her biography what do you think is her broader legacy or contribution to british tv if it's possible to pin that down well, i think i think you know it's possible to overanalyze it i mean you know the tragedy is that you know, without the only thing that matters is do people revisit these programs in years to come? I mean, you know, one of the things that I thought was, if you like, most charming about John's legacy in the end was that whatever people say, and there were plenty of people who slated a lot of the Doctor Who, Doctor Who he produced, people will still be watching that and celebrating that probably 100 years from now. And not many people can say that about most TV shows or films. And that's the nature of something that's a cult, but that's become bigger than a cult. You know, it is broader and more popular than that. And the same is true of Verity, but not just for Doctor Who. There are other things that she did that I think have lasting value. In terms of her legacy, I suppose the fact that she was a woman who achieved as much as she did. Television is now largely run by women, um, which in some ways is a good thing because a lot of women um, make wonderfully... Uh, uh, wonderful colleagues in the sense that they are not some they, they they're often more emotionally connected perhaps than some of your male colleagues um so she was certainly a trailblazer but she didn't intend to be she had no uh, she was a feminist but but not in the sense that she was actively thinking i am a woman doing this for the first time or opening doors for other women i think she just took people as they came they were either very good or they weren't and she wanted to work with very good people whether they were men or women um so i don't think that she was someone who had thoughts about the glass ceiling i think she just didn't occur to her that she wouldn't get what she wanted because she was so positive and so driven. Where, where to for you next in terms of uh, biographies? I mean, you've, you've carved yourself a very interesting niche uh, in terms of Doctor Who biographies. Is there anyone that you'd like to look at next or you'd want to take a break and put the pen down for a, uh, for a time? Yeah. Part, of, part of me wants to say, listen, I've only just finished this yes. one. We're, <laughs> we're, race, we're racing through the proof stages and still making minor tweaks and things because it has to go to print in a week's time. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there, there needs to be a bit of a breathing space. But, um, I mean, I know Matt West is always taunting me with, you know, how, why don't we do the entire set of classic series producers? And I was going, you might have a slim volume on your hands with one or two of them. Um, <laughs> but, and, in, and with other ones, you might have, uh, you know, you might get into even more hot water over people <laughs> who... Uh, whose private lives would become very tricky to kind of unpick. No, I mean, I don't think I'd want to kind of do that kind of game, you know, plod through all of those. And it's interesting that, you know, there are now a lot of biographies of of people who were connected to Doctor Who. I did John because I had a personal connection and I had a lot of empathy for his experience. And actually, I was really fascinated by his journey and what had happened to him and I did Verity because I was curious about her and thought it was interesting and different um, because she had such a rich career but I didn't know much about her as a person and wanted to to rectify that so I think it's always has to start from the point of view that is there enough of a story to tell is it worthy of that amount of work and commitment because that make no mistake about it if you want to do it even halfway decent job you have to um you know you really do have to commit 
a huge amount of time and energy to it. But it's, as I said to you right at the beginning of our chat, it's very, very rewarding. You know, it's like a form of kind of detective work or archaeology, which takes a lot of hours. But in the end, it's an intensely rich and satisfying experience is there anyone outside of the world of doctor who you'd like to write a biography of oh yeah i'll say there's quite a few one in in terms of telly mm. i quite like i quite like to tell the story of biddy baxter who isn't going to be hugely well known in australia but she was my predecessor on blue peter yes. and rather like verity a pioneering woman who ran that show with a rod of iron for 26 years has become a friend of mine um and is a really interesting person and has an interesting legacy to use the l word um and i I, my fear is that that you know i always think if i don't do it someone will write some tripe because there's an awful lot of um you know the internet's a wonderful thing but it's also full of all sorts of half truths and fiction Mm. and total fictions and indeed you know there were those that were that i discovered with verity you know that were that were either baseless or exaggerations or whatever and that's you know that's that's the difficulty you can't research things on the internet you do have to kind of go down the old school route um otherwise you very quickly trip yourself up yeah you said that you're doing the final tweaks on the book when when is the uh, scheduled launch date for it uh, richard just for our listeners so the release is early april sort of first week of april although the hope is that if if we don't uh, uh, overrun in the next few days um that the book should be sent out by the end of march and that's you know i i hate to put the plug in but the plug is that you know it's 13.99 for the paperback when it's ordered direct from milk the publishers the hardback is a limited edition so if you want one of those they're 25 quid and you have to get your ordering quick because i think the john nathan turner hardbacks went in like two days um i have my ongoing disputes with matt about why he doesn't print more of the hardbacks because they are truly a beautiful thing and mm. the hardback verity is going the cover alone is just we were Gorgeous. so lucky we were so lucky with the photographs i mean we found uh we were given access to a lot of her own pictures that fortunately friends had kept and at the very last minute we found this set of photographs taken of her one of which is that cover shot on the hardback and i just think they are so beautiful and they sum her up really you know there's a sort of exuberance and vitality about them she was someone who who really did love life she loved being alive she was a uh, the thing that they said at her funeral was a wonderful thing they said how very unverity to die <laughs> mark do you have any questions before we wrap it up do you want to talk about uh, the other biographies that are that are coming out oh, yeah it's interesting isn't it like i say you know because there's now this enormous industry and interest in Doctor Who and all things to do with Doctor Who. That's, I suppose, it's inspired some people to write stuff themselves, biographies, but also a lot of people who are around have either been asked or are inspired in their final years to think, I want to put my story down and and put it out there for posterity. And I think, like anything, you've got a quite a wide range of stuff, and some of them are, are fantastic and really worth doing, and some of them are dire. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean... I think most people will be pretty conscious of the ones that you pick up and think, oh, I'm not sure about this. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have to big up Milk in terms of the effort they put into things like proofreading and uh, just trying to make the product as professional and polished as possible. And I think sometimes you can read quite a good book that's been really badly edited or not proofread at all. And that's disappointing because 
when the actual text is worthwhile it's a shame to see it sort of handicapped by um you know not very good production values uh or attention to detail so i don't know what what you guys think i mean it's it's an interesting thing you know, most of the books that i guess get to you you're paying presumably sizable amounts on top of that unless someone imports them for you yeah, that's right. I mean, the shipping costs alone are quite uh, exorbitant over here. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at bookshelf. So, no, bookshelf now. I've got the Richard Molesworth's uh, Robert Holmes one, which I thought was quite good. I've obviously got you know, the J and T one. Um, Blue Box Boy. I've got. Well, Blue Box Boy was one that divided opinion, but I thought mm. it was. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. Really, I I loved that he tried to write. I mean, you know, it's not always fully successful, I guess, but you know, he tried to write something that had a life as a piece of writing rather than just being a memoir. And funnily enough, it sort of also captures something of Matthew's personality. The very fact, you know, he's he's slightly kind of, um, what's the word? He's a sort of trapped in the wrong time. You know, he's a sort of bit of a, a wannabe poet. And he, he puts, you know, highfalutin ideas. And he's a tricky character. And, you know, he had so much hate over the years in fandom, mm. um, you know, some of which was... Um, very unfair and to do with jealousy or to do with the fact that people didn't like the idea that he was a fan and what did that say about fans and partly because he played a kind of dorky character uh, and people felt that he you know there could have been better actors in the part and so on and so forth but uh, you know he's he's kind of he he wrote that with a lot of charm I thought and and I believed it I recognized uh, some of the situations he was describing i thought were very authentic the first four doctors have either had biographies or autobiographies written would you like to tackle a biography of, a, of another doctor yeah i mean it would be interesting because my doctor was really john pertwee and he, as you know he wrote he he wrote the sort of first leg of his autobiography mm. and didn't get any further which was a real shame and he was a wonderful character and then there was a very inadequate biography of him came out about a couple of years ago which i leaf through in a bookshop and thought this is just you know should be put into the recycling box straight away <laughs> um i mean that you know that does annoy me it mm. annoys when i see books there was a book that supposedly for charity well i'm sure it was for charity but lala ward thing and and it was a thing you know i picked it up and i thought this is just an insult you know it wasn't a book it was a booklet and i think there was a full page where it says i don't remember anything about full circle and that was that you know that's kind of sticking two fingers up at that market and saying you'll buy any old crap and you might buy any old crap if uh, the addendum to that is that a bit of the money goes to charity i just i'm not home to that kind of approach at all and i think that biographies that that don't try to kind of you know do any of the real homework and that john pertwee one was one that springs to mind whereas you know like you mentioned richard's book about robert holmes now you know that's not particularly my that wouldn't be my approach it's much more based on the work but yeah. it has value you know it has absolutely it has credibility and value because he's absolutely upfront that that's what he's interested in doing he was more interested in charting bob holmes you know professionally than he was personally and that was his call and he was very thorough about you know what he covered in terms of the work and if i'd been editing it i would have been saying what about can't you find some more about this and you know but you can relate to his intention and you know that the work is solid and um, i mean jessica carney's biography of her 
grandfather is an important Doctor Who book for obvious reasons. And I like that she wasn't blind to some of the issues that needed to be discussed about him and his approach and his character. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't a kind of hagiography. Mm. Um, Troughton's son's book was an interesting book to read because I think it was also for him quite a painful process, you know, that he was f- having to relate. Uh, his father had a complicated emotional life and, you know, I thought it was brave of him to sort of even go there, really. Um, and and he did it and it was very loving and I liked that. I thought that, you know, which is not to say that you couldn't, you know, someone outside of the family couldn't do a, a, a valid biography of both of those actors, uh, you know, in a different way. But it's wonderful that members of the family have had a go at it and, and very valid. They have sort of books that you would definitely think, yeah, they're, they're worthwhile to have on your bookshelf for good. Absolutely. I'm looking at them right now. Yeah, so you see, I mean, I'm yeah. just trying to think about the others. You know, there have been an awful lot. I mean, of the recent series, of course, most of those are cash-in because it's much harder to write about people when they're still alive for obvious reasons. That's right. Um, you know, and you don't also, it's not just because you, you, can, you can't defame dead people. It's not just that. It's also because... It, it, you know, you need the detachment of time because, I mean, you know, one of the things about Verity was that almost all of the people I spoke to were well over the age of 70 and some of them over the age of 80 and some of them over the age of 90. You know, you're suddenly in a, you know, it was last chance saloon, really, to mm. capture memories of some of these people. And when they're gone, that's it. You They're, they're out of your reach. I think five of the people I spoke to have died since since the book was written. So... You know, that's quite, you, you, I'm conscious of that too. It's important to try to capture things while you can. Um, and so it's an ongoing thing. You know, probably the book that's worth writing about David Tennant won't be written for another 40 or 50 years. And that assumes that his career will carry on going. Regardless. Yeah, exactly. And, and the same with Moffat and RTD oh, as well. Oh, yes. Well, there's definitely a book to be written there, but uh, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> If I last that long, I shall be getting someone to wheel me to the wheel me to the top of the queue to buy a copy because that that I'm sure will be a good read. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you and you've interviewed many many, uh, you know, behind the scenes personnel of, of Doctor Who, yes. and yes, I mean you have to keep an archive of all this information and recordings yourself because potentially in ten or fifteen years' time somebody else will not asking you for yeah, you know your I mean, correspondence and, and recordings. Well, that's true. I mean, I think I've already lent, I mean, R- Richard Molesworth, I lent my Robert Holmes, the recording of my Robert Holmes interview to him because Holmes didn't do very many interviews. That's right. Um, and I, I, likewise, I lent my uh, Patrick Troughton interview to the guys who did the DVDs. Um, happily, I got all all the tapes that I had of interviews. A really good guy called Charles Norton, who's a bit of an expert in in kind of archive sound stuff. He's digitized them all and has, you know, kind of tarted them up so that they're, they're as audible as possible. And that's a, that, you know, is useful because an awful lot of those people I spoke to way back, of course, are no longer with us. And, you know, I used to like to talk to people like, you know, directors like Derek Martinus or, you know, people like that who, who weren't often interviewed. Mm. You know, Would you like to see those interviews released? Somehow? Well, we might do something. Yes, yeah. there's, there is some talk about doing potentially doing something with some of those interviews and writing 
bookending them so that there's something about the actual encounter the story of you know meeting that person mm. uh with yeah uh, with a little you know potted biography of, of the person and that that might be a goer i mean i'm a bit wary of just plain interview books because you know i think telos have done a few of those which are useful to have as sort of reference mm. but they're they're not they don't flow particularly well as a book you know they they are more like a collected compendium of of facts if you like um but i think you know the think you could create something maybe that's more of a read i don't know i'm rambling on but i think i think yeah there's possibility that's definitely something that that we're talking about a friend of ours gave us an interview with joseph uh, first the man who was zeroff in the underwater menace nothing in the world can stop you now exactly we've got like it's an extract of one minute <laughs> but, oh okay so in depth it was absolutely in depth it just talks about him dying in character so uh We'll be releasing that in a few weeks. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, that's no, you've got a, at least you've got a scoop. Yeah, As John yeah. Nathan would say, would you like a scoop? <laughs> that's, what he, that's what he used to say to me, and he used to make it sound filthy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Richard right. Marsden, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us uh, on the uh, on, on our podcast. Uh, for everyone out there, the book is, of course, Drama and Delight, The Life of Verity Lambert. Uh, strongly urge you to go to the Milk Publishing website to order directly from them if you can. Always support your small press uh, publishers. So, Richard, thank you so much for coming on board. Thanks, Richard. Absolute pleasure. Really good to talk to you guys. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.